You're listening to Seattle Real Estate Podcast. Super hot topic. We're going to be talking more and more about here on the Seattle Real Estate Podcast, because believe it or not, this is a real estate thing. But it's becoming more one of those deals where it's an issue across the United States. And uh, will upzoning neighborhoods make homes more affordable. I have very strong feelings on this. As a real estate dude for the last 30 something years, to have one system in place that kind of handles everything. And then all of a sudden, you know what, take all of those rules, take all those regulations that have been carefully kind of worked out. Eh, we're just gonna, we're just gonna let you build whatever willy nilly here and there. And hopefully this will work out. We don't really have any data to support that upzoning will make things more affordable. It's certainly not going to solve the affordable housing crisis. But let's just do it anyway and see what happens. That's kind of my take on the whole thing. Um, Massively oversimplified, of course, but there are so many different little segments in this this topic up zoning. Okay, so why did we have zoning in the first place to basically have people live in one area, have industrial in another area, have commercial in another area, have it all make sense within a city's planning, you know, the overall planning. But now we're like, hey, those single family areas, they got a lot of land. Let's just up zone them and see what goes on. And when you do that, you wildly rock. How about the capacity of the streets? How about the capacity of the parks? How about the infrastructure of the sewer systems, infrastructure of water, electricity, all that? All of a sudden, you, you're saying, all right, we're going to create a whole bunch more density in there that it wasn't really designed for. Yeah, this should work out. It's what we're talking about today. If you're new here, my name is Sean Reynolds. I own a couple of real estate companies. I own a real estate brokerage and an appraisal firm, residential appraisal firm. So zoning is important. Let's check this one out. And this is by Curbed. Cities and states across the country are proposing new upzoning laws to combat the housing crisis. Will they work? I don't agree with um, everything in this article, but I think it raises some really good questions and we're going to talk about it. There's a lot to cover here, so I'm just going to kind of jump on in. Housing affordability is a growing issue in America and there's a battle over how to fix it happening on blocks across the country. Zoning, the rules that govern how cities use their land, is on the front line. Between 1986, the year before I graduated from high school, and 2017, the median price of single-family housing in the U.S. rose from 370% of the median U.S. household's yearly income to 410%. So it's going up. It's not going down is the bottom line. That's according to the Harvard Joint Study for something. 11 million American households spend more than half their paychecks on rent and utilities. When I got into real estate, it used to be like 30%. You know, dedicate 30% of your, uh, your income on rent and utilities just to keep the roof over your head. And the number of cost burden renters is on the rise, especially among middle income neighborhoods, middle income households. The percentage of super commuters, meaning those who travel more than 90 minutes each way to work has skyrocketed because you got to go further out to find an affordable house. We've got that here in Seattle. We sell homes 
um, when I first started in in real estate, I would hear stories every now and then of guys riding their motorcycles from east of the mountains, community called Allensburg to downtown Seattle. It didn't take them very long because it's I-90. It's an open shot. And who doesn't want to ride their motorcycle? Except in February when it's really cold, possibly snowing, motorcycle, mm, very, very chilly. Um, but you hear of people making a two-hour commute if they only have to do it every now and then. But 90 minutes now isn't crazy. And in California, in an LA market, that's just called commuting, right? Because of traffic. Almost nowhere in the United States is it possible for a minimum wage worker to afford a two-bedroom apartment. Each year, an estimated 2.5 to 3.5 million people experience homelessness. Progressive coastal cities and rural America alike are experiencing shortages of affordable housing. This has been going on for a long time. Recently, policymakers at the state and local levels across the country have zeroed in on a culprit zoning that limits development to single family detached houses in large swaths of America. From the east and west coast to the Midwest, lawmakers are beating the drum for upzoning, which means changing single-family zoning codes to allow taller and denser housing like duplexes, triplexes, accessory dwelling units, ADUs, and apartment buildings. In the last few years, upzoning legislation has been introduced or passed in California, Oregon, Washington, Seattle, Minneapolis, Nebraska, Virginia, and Maryland. Federal government has also expressed interest in pressing local governments to relax zoning laws that prohibit multifamily housing. What we've seen in Seattle the last probably 10 years of my appraisal career, a lot of ADUs. Hey, you got a 4,000 square foot lot. You got your main house. All right. You're going to put a, um, you know, a 400 square foot footprint, 20 by 20, and you're going to go up three stories, or maybe you burrow down one for a basement, go up two levels, a lot of that type of housing. And if you drive and that's basically in like Seattle, where you've got the really urban, you know, 5000 square foot lot is is minimum. But we have seen lots as small as 800 square feet, zero lot lines, um, you know, so the lot line is literally the foundation of your home. You own that below you. 800 square foot lot. That has become the norm and even smaller because you can get a housing, you know, a unit of housing out of that. And, you know, multiple, you might have an 8,000 square foot lot and 10 units on it. So what used to hold one single family home now has eight or 10. That is the norm. And they're all these skinny, uh, boxy places. In, a, in the appraisal world, we love them because they're easy to measure. You got a front measurement and a side measurement done instead of these big, complex, multi-angular homes that came out of the 1980s and 1990s. So from the appraisal standpoint, the upzoning, it's been, uh, you know, in, in a Seattle neighborhood, you know, <laughs> it's easier because they're easier to measure. And they're also cookie cutter. They're just they're very vanilla. It's like, all right, you got your Miami Vice looking home. And that's normal, because that is what you can use to maximize density. And when you drive around these neighborhoods, what you notice is that there is no parking. Getting in the the said garages of these areas is a nightmare because you don't, you've got this tiny little alleyway driveway that you make these hard turns into this housing. You, you're lucky to get a motorcycle into those garages. So the whole thing, yes, you pack in more people, 
but the overall utility of the land to me goes down. Yeah, you packed in a bunch more people. Did you make it better? No, but that's kind of not the point here. And what I see happening is, all right, so you're going to upzone. That means you're going to try and create more housing units. You're going to get more supply in there, right? Um, what supply is going to be built? New construction. What's the most expensive housing in any market typically? New construction. Because once it's not new, it's depreciated. So who's going to be able to afford that? Yeah, the people with money. Is this really a solution? No, but you're going to get some more supply. And there's some arguments that oh, up zoning, it's going to do it. Let's keep going. This week, California legislators failed to advance SB 50, one of the most high profile zoning bills to up to date, which proposed added density near transit. But is up zoning enough to alleviate the housing shortage? To answer that question, it's important to know how single family zoning became perceived as the norm for housing, and how that's fueling the affordability crisis. A brief zoning history in America. At its most basic, zoning determines that you can build on a parcel of land, land use, and how much building is allowed, density. Zoning is the primary way cities manage and regulate land. It varies in complexity from place to place and can either mandate specific uses, such as in New York City's mandatory inclusionary zoning that requires affordable units in all new development, or prohibit them, like exclusionary zoning ordinances that once enforced segregation. The widespread adoption of zoning codes in the United States began in the early 20th century as cities were urbanizing rapidly. Zoning laws were created to prevent nuisances like factories from entering desirable neighborhoods, an early form of not in my backyard. That's a big thing, right? N-I-M-B-Y. Uh, when Los Angeles enacted its first municipal zoning ordinance in 1904, it prohibited any public laundry or wash house from entering residential districts. In 1908, LA divided all land into residential and industrial districts, making it the first place to zone citywide. I don't know if you've been to LA lately, but it doesn't really look like in a lot of their neighborhoods that they have zoning. In 1916, New York City enacted the first comprehensive municipal zoning code after concern about skyscrapers blocking light and air and a boom and a boom in speculative development. Now we got to figure out something. We can't have this stuff just going all over willy nilly. You build that over there, you build that there, and you, you build that over there. All right, guys, are we in agreement? Massive oversimplification, right? But that's, that's kind of the general idea. Cramped and overcrowded areas of the city were portrayed by social reformers as unhealthy and dirty. A description with clear racial overtones, since these were also areas where immigrants lived and less dense areas where light and air could enter were viewed as healthier and safer. It's more difficult to keep a mixed district containing stores and dwellings clean and sanitary than a residential district with just homes. The city's commission on buildings uh, district reported in 1916. So a lot of our zoning happened 
way back when. Through the 1920s, it was common for neighborhoods to include a variety of housing types, detached single-family houses, duplexes, apartments, bungalow courts, and commercial uses like corner stores. But as zoning took off, it established primary uses for neighborhoods, which sometimes segregated their populations too. The few experts who completed zoning codes in their cities were called upon to consult on codes elsewhere. Their segregationist views came with them, even though the Supreme Court declared racial zoning unconstitutional in 1917. So this has always been the struggle, right? All right, we're going to have these people live over here. Uh, these people are going to be here. And all right, these people are going to be here. But we're not really going to say it. But way back when, and you'll see this in deeds, real estate deeds, not that long ago, where there was literally exclusions in the deeds. If you're this race, you can't live here. There were entire communities here in Seattle. Seattle kind of came, you know, it came around much later because as a city, it developed much later than a lot of the East Coast cities. We've, but still, we've got neighborhoods that had in their initial uh, deeds, yeah, if you're this race, you can't buy a house here. You can't live here. This is, this is exclusive. They literally did that. Robert Witten, co-author of New York City's 1916 Zoning Ordinance and president of the American City Planning Institute, believed that bankers and leading businessmen should live in one part of town, storekeepers, clerks, and technicians in another, and working people and yet others where they would enjoy the association with neighbors more or less of their own kind. He also worked on the 1922 Zoning Code for Atlanta, which helped pave the way for the segregation that continues to define that city. Harlan Bartholomew, the planner who developed St. Louis's 1916 zoning code with the goal of preventing movement into finer residential districts by colored people, was hired to consult on over 500 zoning codes and comprehensive plans over the course of his career, including those for Pittsburgh, New Orleans, Kansas City, Seattle, Louisville, and Washington, D.C., Amid a growing labor movement in 1919, more than 4 million workers participated in strikes. Industrialists also pushed for homeownership as a way to keep workers happy and more dependent on their jobs. The man owns his own, his, the man owns his home, but in a sense, his home owns him, checking his rash impulses, stated the 1919 book, Good Homes Make Contented Workers, because they need to keep working to keep their home, the roof over their head. Around the same time, the federal government began promoting single-family detached houses as a way to fight communism and promote capitalism in response to the Red Scare. We got a lot of spins going on here, don't we? President Coolidge wrote a 1922 essay called A Nation of Homeowners, which promoted single-family detached houses as a patriotic ideal. I mean, it's the American dream, right? Got your home with a picket fence. Nowhere in there is that, um, you know, the 14-unit project with a barbed wire fence around the outside and a parking lot that's all tagged up. That's not in there. It's this single family home with the white picket fence, the nicely mowed lawn, the new roof. You know, it's just, it's that ideal. This ideal ideology continued under Hoover, who in 1927 praised the growth of suburban neighborhoods, the tremendous post-war expansion of suburban areas with detached houses, which the development of the automobile has helped make possible is one of the finest achievements of the present period of increasing national prosperity. 
when you look at the tax records as an appraiser, and you see kind of what year a home was built in, there's so many trends that came out of that post war housing, right? Bang up those uh, homes, because the the guys coming home from the war, they're starting families, they're getting they're doing their job, they're getting into their careers, whatever it is, we post war housing, we need some post war housing. The single family was put on a pedestal says Jenny Schutz, a Brookings Institute expert on urban economics and housing policy. It was single family neighborhoods should only have single family detached homes. And a lot of this is about preserving the property values of those homes. Single family residential zoning was about keeping away things that are considered undesirable uses, which might lower property values. Yes, and no. To me, it's like, okay, you don't put a you don't put a house, you don't put housing next to a, you know, some kind of plant, some kind of industrial use, you just don't. So whether or not it's single family or multifamily or whatever, you also don't put an enormous apartment complex next to a single family next to a gas station next to a, you know, whatever, you got to have some planning in there. Otherwise, things get wildly out of control. And that just kind of makes sense, right? Gas stations, because they're a, you know, toxic wasteland, and we didn't really know that back then as much as we do now. You, you need to have those in certain areas, because if you have a spill, all right, you don't want, you know, neighborhood homes blowing up when you've got the explosion from the gas station, what happens every now and then, but it's pretty rare. Early on in my career, I did an appraisal on a big, massive estate, and they had a gas pump on there. It was kind of like a farm type deal. Ooh, residential lenders, that was a no go. They did not want to lend on that. One photo I put in the appraisal, ooh, nobody touched that property. Because it's residential, nobody wants a gas tank, underground gas tank storage in their, you know, there's just no go. So there was also some pretty blatant intent to exclude lower income families, renters and non white families. We know that it's it's in our deeds. We've seen that. We've tried to get away from that. I mean, that's not a thing anymore, right? Um, Zoning now makes it illegal to build anything other than a detached single family home on most residential land in many of the American cities with the most competitive housing markets and strongest job growth, according to a recent New York Times analysis. Detached single family homes account for 75% of all land zoned for residential use in Los Angeles, 75% in LA, 94% in San Jose, that's high. 81% in Seattle. So Seattle, I've spent my whole career in Seattle. Seattle doesn't have much multifamily housing, never has. So we've always struggled with affordable housing here. And it's kind of just the way things started off. We had more residential than we did any other zoning, 81%. 77% in Portland, which is pretty similar to Seattle, and 70% in Minneapolis. In areas with high demand for new housing, some lawmakers and economists believe single-family zoning is a clear restriction on supply, which is driving the price of housing up. All right, so you upzone, and now you've got two lots instead of one lot, let's just say, in an area that's super dense. That lot isn't going to be worth that, that extra lot isn't going to be worth that much less than the whole lot from before, because now you can build another unit on it, right? Right. 
So are property values going to go down with this increase of supply? No, you're just going to bring more builders and developers to the area, they're going to keep doing their same thing. And that's exactly what you've seen in Seattle in the last 10 years, a whole crew of builders, developers that have figured out the zoning, I've worked with a ton of them. It, it's, you know, it's supply and demand. If you've got a demand for it, you're going to have as many builders go in there and develop until the time when profits start to drop. And then some of those guys drop off. That has not happened. They're still going 100 miles an hour. What is up zoning? Why are lawmakers proposing it? In response to the growing housing affordability crisis, policymakers in many cities and states are trying to figure out how to add more housing. The challenge is that buildings occupy most of the land in cities. Upzoning opens up the capacity of this land for more housing. There's also a climate case for upzoning. Building housing closer to transportation and jobs means people have to travel shorter distances to work and shop. Lowering vehicle miles traveled and potentially allowing them to use public transportation and walk in lieu of cars. All right, that is true. But again, Look at who the, look at who can afford new construction in like a Portland, in a Seattle, in the the areas we're talking about doing the upzoning. Who can afford that? Yeah, it's not our minimum wage workers, is it? It's not. And we're not talking about developing that housing to turn it into rental housing. No, it's so expensive. These are going to be owner occupied homes. Bar none. Upzoning means changing the zoning code to allow taller and and or denser buildings. The tall, skinny building, that's becoming the norm. This is different from a rezoning, which in addition to allowing bigger construction, changes land use, like the New York City rezonings of Williamsburg and Greenpoint Industrial Waterfront to residential. It increases the buildable capacity of land, creating the opportunity to increase supply. My opinion is, is all of this stuff, as soon as you create that supply, it's going to get sucked up because you've got such demand in these areas, you're talking about, you know, trying to increase supplies to to drop pricing to get pricing to finally come in line with people's wages. That's not going to happen. As Christopher Herbert, managing director of the Harvard Joint Center for Housing Studies explains it, as long as there is sufficient demand for housing, developers will build, huh, this guy's from Harvard. He thinks like I do. Shocking. And I don't have a college degree. Let's, let's just be clear there. <laughs> the price of land, the cost to build a home and what the market is willing to pay for a home all factor into a developer's math. Okay. They're out to make money. They're going to make money. And you know what? They're not going to go. All right. Yeah. I can make money. Yeah. Hey, we're creating some supply here. And oh, hey, yeah, this is affordable. None of this stuff in a Seattle market is going to be affordable. It's just not. If the cost of land is low enough that the developer can earn a profit, then the developer will build. By increasing the number of units that can be built on each parcel, upzoning lowers the cost of land per unit. Okay, a little bit, but oftentimes not. And I have to analyze that as an appraiser on every new construction, new construction appraisal. And here's the thing. You take a 4,000 square foot lot, you cut it in two. If you can still build on each of those 2,000 square foot parcels, that land is not worth that much less than the 4,000 square foot parcel where you had one house. And depending on how the market is going, it might be worth more because time has moved on when you get those two 2,000 square foot lots. 
and it's worth more. You've got appreciation in the marketplace. So a lot of times it doesn't make any sense. You would think that by splitting that lot in half, it's going to be worth half the, va- the value, right? Not the case. You can build a home on it. It's a smaller home because it's not as big and you've got, you know, zoning restrictions. But then again, the city has allowed this to happen. It, you know, they're encouraging this to happen. So your, your, your urban land dynamics are really interesting. They're, I mean, it, it, it is. It's been a crazy time because you're like an 800 square foot lot. Okay. All right. Yeah. Let's see how that goes. And it goes and people make money and they get bought and sold all day long. Summit Properties Northwest, we sell that type of product all day long. There's a hope that if we upzone this land worth $1 million, and now we can put two units on it, the land cost is 500000 There's a hope. You know what? That and um, a prayer will get you there. That's, that's not how this works. But as soon as you tell me I can put two units there, it's going to affect the price of land since it becomes more valuable. It's buildable. What's a buildable lot worth? 2,000 square foot versus 4,000 square foot in an area where that's going on all the time? You know, uh, can you build on it is the question you need to ask. Because then if you can, new construction goes up. Is new construction at the top of the heap? Yes, it is. It's had zero depreciation. People will pay a premium for new construction over a similar product that hasn't been lived in before that is real estate. That's real estate 101. They don't go to the older home. Ah, this one's 10 years old. I like it that people, you know, have used those toilets for 10 years versus this one over here that's, you know, fresh and clean. And and it's that whole getting a new car thing, right? It doesn't really matter, but you like the sm- the, the, the fresh smell of the car. You like the fact that your wife is able to cook in that kitchen. She's the very first person to bake that apple pie in your single family home with the white picket fence. I'm, I'm generalizing, right? I mean, a study published in January 2019 in the jur- journal Urban Affairs Review analyzed the impact of new upzoning policies Chicago passed in 2013 and 2015 that allowed denser housing near transit stops. The study concluded that over a five-year time span, upzoning didn't increase housing supply, but it did increase land values. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, let's just keep going because this somehow makes sense to somebody somewhere. Proponents of upzoning argue that allowing denser construction will encourage more housing supply. It will create more housing supply, but it doesn't create the solutions for the problems you're looking for. And as more supply enters the market, housing will become more affordable through the filtering effect. That's nonsense. Where even high-priced new housing on lower, can lower rents for lower-income residents by reducing the competition for homes. There's already... We've already, de- we've already determined there's already so much competition for this housing that there is a backlog of demand. The, the people on the low end of the totem pole who have the, you know, the minimum wage jobs, they're never going to get their spot in line. One challenge with this approach is that once added capacity, is that added capacity doesn't necessarily translate into added construction because developers don't always choose to build. Well, they will. If you, if you've got zoning and you've got the ability to do it, highest and best use, which is the underpinning, underlining, um, principle of residential real estate. And it determines what use is going to bring in the most money. 
And lenders will literally say, is this the highest and best use? Because if it's not, we're not going to lend on it. That happens all day long. All right, it's a different use. Okay, that's not a use that we lend on. We're not doing it. And I've had that conversation with lenders, I don't know how many times over the course of my career. So that's a thing. So if it's buildable, and they can, developers are more than likely going to build on it. Additionally, the housing market is so severely pressured in different areas that the filtering effect is highly unpredictable, meaning not gonna happen. And I, and I know a lot of the stuff that I'm saying, people are like, Oh, geez, huh? Ooh, yeah. Ooh. Ah, I'm a real estate guy. Historically, upzoning has been used on a case by case basis in cities when Washington DC was planning its metro expansion in the 1960s. For example, Arlington, Virginia decided to upzone the areas within a half mile of new stations, resulting in seven mixed use walkable neighborhoods that are now in heavy demand. Recent legislation to upzone single family residential areas and mass focuses on so called middle missing middle housing. A uh, term coined in 2010 by Berkeley-based architect Daniel Paralek, which includes accessory dwelling units, duplexes, fourplexes, townhomes, and bungalow courts. That's a lot of what Seattle has had built in the last 10, 15 years. And we tend to follow San Francisco and a lot of housing trends. These housing types fall somewhere between single-family homes and mid-rise multifamily dwellings multifamily buildings, that is exactly where they fall in. When designed thoughtfully, missing middle housing adds density without dramatically changing the character of a neighborhood. Not dramatically, but it doesn't improve it. You get more housing units, but it doesn't improve it. You drive through and you're like, God, this is just super dense. And these houses are kind of hard to get in and out of. And there's just a lot going on and traffic is miserable. Um, the sort of gently the sort of gentle density increases that are being proposed now, we haven't actually seen that much, Shute said. Some recent attempts at increasing density will be closely watched in coming years to see what effect they have on housing supply and costs. Because estimating the market's response to these changes is unpredictable. The city doesn't know how much construction these changes will lead to, though it predicts that areas near universities, transit, parks, trails, and retail will see more development first. That makes sense. The general policy here was to ensure as much land use flexibility as practicable. That's a weird word, uh, says Heather Worthington, Minneapolis's director of long range planning. Oregon's House Bill 2001, which passed in July 2019, legalizes duplexes on all single family zoned land in cities with populations above 10,000 people, which is pretty much all of them. In cities over 25,000, the bill legalizes triplexes, fourplexes, attached townhomes, and some cottage clusters in areas zoned single family residential. October also saw changes in California. Governor Gavin Newsom signed several housing bills, including AB 68, which allows one ADU and one junior ADU on lots zoned for single family residential. Cambridge, Massachusetts is considering an affordable housing overlay, which means allowing up zoning only if the new units are 100% affordable. Okay, what's that going to look like? Hmm. The biggest proposed upzoning legislation to date is California's SB 50, which in late January failed to receive enough votes to move the measure forward. Also known as the More Homes Act, it called for cities and municipalities to add more housing near transit hubs. 
Proposed by State Senator Scott Wisner, the bill offered local governments the option to create their own plans or use a default zoning plan from the state. The bill also included requirements that local plans pair low-income housing development with market rate development. So you've got this whole thing, I think, where people understand that even if we upzone, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to drop the affordability of, of, of those neighborhoods. It, it's not. It's going to, the housing that's going to get built is new construction. And that is always super expensive. And only a certain, you know, segment of the population can afford it. Even if it's really small, tiny housing, that stuff is still really expensive because it's new in an area that is typically here in Seattle or the East Side or Bellevue. You're talking 1950s housing. And now you've got, call it a 1200 square foot ADU. That's still not that much smaller than a lot of the housing that was originally built in the 1950s. And yet it's brand new. Who can afford that? Yeah, the people making some pretty decent money. That's the bottom line here. Fundamentally, UpZone is making it legal to build the kind of housing we used to build, says Brian Hanlon. And yet the market has wildly changed. And by doing this, it's not gonna, it's not gonna create the solutions that we're looking for here, but it's doing something. And a lot of this is just going to be a, you know, another social experiment that we're going to watch unfold and go, ah, hmm, wow, that didn't really work out the way we intended. What are we going to do now? I mean, I think that's a lot of what we're going to see. A recent report from the Turner Center for Housing and Innovation and the Urban Displacement Project, two research groups at uh, UC Berkeley explored how local factors might have influenced ASB's 50s impact and concluded that because builders will have to work around small parcel sizes in existing buildings, Manhattanization of areas is unlikely. Hmm, Okay. Let's see, let's see what else we've got here. Uh, does upzoning work? Because upzoning of single family residential land is a relatively new phenomenon. When land markets and regulations differ from city to city, there are a few studies that analyze the effects. There's also very little data from pro upzoning lawmakers on how many units their legislation can or would create since the housing market is unpredictable. It's also privatized, right? You're not talking about cities building this stuff. You're talking about private builders and private developers. And, you know, I hear a lot about, ah, well, this major home builder, they're just buying up everything in the country. And I'm going to, I'm going to read some emails that you guys have sent. We're going to talk about some of this stuff. Uh, here in the Seattle market, you don't have big, huge, massive companies coming in and buying big swaths of the available inventory because we don't have enough inventory for them to do that. And across the United States, less than 10% of the transactions are done by big institutional investors coming in and buying residential housing. So I hear a lot of people talking about Blackstone or whatever as, as a reason why we've got this short supply. It, it, that's not the case. It's we've, we've been on a short supply train wreck for since the Great Recession started. Not enough builders haven't built enough supply, haven't had enough supply, went into the whole Rona thing with not enough supply, you know, goosed it, goosed the market with some gasoline with low interest rates and people focusing on housing. And now you've got a real crisis and people are like, Oh yeah, it's a, it's a lot of big institutional investors that have taken out the housing stock. Now, this has been going on for a long time. 
Um, Oregon and Minneapolis are going to be our guinea pig, Schoit said. Now that they've got this new legislation, how quickly does the housing market start to respond? Here's the thing on new construction and development. It is highly inelastic. Meaning when you recognized the that there is big demand there, bringing that supply to the point where you're meeting demand, it takes forever because of the time frame on development forever. And oftentimes what happens is that builders recognize the development and they go, okay, we're going to put this in the pipeline. And then the market crashes. And then they're like, ah, oh, yeah, let's put that on hold. That's, that's not going to work. Our margins weren't nearly what we thought they were when we bought this land. And how do I know that? Because I've had the conversations with builders who are like, yeah, those appraisal orders that you have in your pipeline, we're going to put those on hold. We got to see what the market is going to do because our numbers no longer work based on where prices have dropped to. And a lot of that was in uh, the Great Recession after the Great Recession happened. You had pre-recession numbers. All right, 2005, 2006, things are just really going to the moon. Oh, yeah, we've had a 35% correction. Hmm, what do you think that does to those builders profits? Yeah, it makes their projects not exactly, you know, you know such a good deal anymore, right? Um, the way we think of this kind of upzoning is it's not the solution for affordability, but it's a solution to add housing to these built environments. Okay. But at what cost? That's my concern. That's my concern. Herbert is also skeptical about upzoning's impact on affordability since the housing market is structured to maximize profit. But then again, you know, in a lot of these communities where they're just demanding more upzoning, You've got socialists involved on their city councils, right? You got people who literally believe in socialism and land development and people who are into socialism, they don't really understand real estate at all. You see the comments that these people on city councils make and you're like, well, that's a hundred percent wrong. You're never going to get there. And here's why, but why would they listen to a real estate guy with like 30 something years of doing it day in and day out? Oh, they wouldn't. So now I talk about it on a podcast. It's what we're doing. All right. So just some more stuff in here. Um, upzoning reduces the cost per unit for land since the cost of the land is spread over more units. Changing the zoning code to allow more housing doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean new housing will be built if other regulations like building codes and the permitting process make it too expensive for developers to build. Plus, the construction labor shortage is pushing the cost of building even higher. That's another thing. Materials and labor have gone through the roof. So you think you've got an affordable, you know, affordability problem now, about 10 years from now, what do you think that's going to look like? Is it going to look better between now and 10 years from now? Do you think that we will have figured this out? No, housing is going through the, it, it, it's going up. The, the supply is too small. Demand is too great. Um, until you have a major, uh, you know, change in the way we do things or population, something along those lines. We've just got, we've got some, you know, low supply and affordable housing is going to be a huge, huge issue. All right. So what else do we have here? Ah, a bunch of stuff. Uh, 
Upzoning by itself is not enough, said California's yes in my backyard. It's not going to solve the affordability crisis for everyone and not on a time scale that will help everyone. We need a whole panoply of legislation. I don't know what they're going to do. That's the bottom line. I just know that upzoning isn't the be all and end all that people who don't understand real estate think it is. Go ahead, upzone it. Let's see what happens. I think you'd be surprised. And it'll be one of those things where, uh, you know, you just kind of go, Oh, yeah, saw that one coming. We talked about that on the Seattle real estate podcast in what year? What year was that? 2021. And here we are in 2027. And huh, yeah, hmm. what happened? Yeah, kind of went that way, didn't it? I think that's what's going to happen. Um, but but you know, cities are going to give it a hard run. Their upzoning is going to be the big thing. It's going to be the big talk about subject. Should we upzone? Should should we upzone? Higher density. It's the way that we're going to solve our affordability issues. All right, let's give her a rip. Let's see what happens because you're not going to stop it. I don't think you're going to stop it. It's going to happen. And then we're going to look at it and go, all right, that was kind of like chop. We saw how the social experiment went. And you know, those guys over there, they said it just wasn't going to work out. <laughs> they were right. <laughs> Shocking. All right, let's keep going because that's what goes on, right? In the meantime, I'm going to cover this topic a bunch here in the Seattle Real Estate Podcast. I know, I know it's not as exciting as all the other stuff we typically cover, and I'm probably not going to get as many views. But this is one of those topics where I think it, um, you know, it needs coverage, upzoning, upzoning, and you're going to get affordable housing. Don't think so, folks. All right. But that's just my opinion. And I'm a real estate guy. So don't, oh, wait a minute. You can listen to me on this one. Not going to work, but give it a run. See what happens. I'll be here and I'll podcast about it. All right. Thanks so much for being part of the Seattle Real Estate Podcast. Appreciate it so much. Love to have you subscribe if you so see fit. Uh, other than that, I got, I got another one. I got another good one to record here. So I'll talk to you guys soon. Until then, stay safe. We'll talk then. Bye. Don't forget to subscribe to our channel and hit the notification bell so you'll know when our next video is out.